when we say confession, Andrew, are we talking about going into the little box and uh, admitting your sins to a priest? Bovcast. 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 This is the Bovcast. A podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. So this is yet another episode of Bovcast. I am Andrew Smith. And I'm Caleb Castro. This is going to come in at about episode 43. It's been almost a year. Yeah. Since we started this. We are recording this just a few days shy of the one year anniversary of 14 Days to Flatten the Curve. <laughs> That's right. How are we doing so far? It's been a lot longer than 14 days, and that curve has done everything but be flat. If you guys have been listening in, if you had heard those first episodes, we really started doing this just after a lockdown restriction started taking place. We thought it would be a good opportunity in our whatever spare time we had, start on this little project. Yeah, it was kind of a strange time because, for instance, the supplies that you need to make a podcast, microphones and all that, it seems like when the pandemic started, everybody started doing podcasts, and so microphones were sold out and hard to get, and this was something everybody was doing. You know, you say everybody, I mean, really, to stress that, I think just the other day I was watching something, maybe it was on YouTube, but like, I heard Paris Hilton has a podcast. Oh, that just sounds wonderfully insightful and informative. It's like, yeah, well, when we say literally everyone has a podcast now, that's, I mean, that's pretty much it. Yeah. We actually had one more person when we started. We had our friend Mark Scaturro, who rolled off during the summer due to family and church responsibilities. Still listens. That's right. Hi, Mark. <laughs> Hi, Mark. We're still not funny. Nope. We never were. We never figured out how to actually tackle that. Yeah, we've never figured out how to be interesting or entertaining. That people keep listening week in, week out, just boggles our minds <laughs> it's uh it might be out of charity or something i don't know yeah y'all are really nice people and we're really happy that you're so nice to us at least most of you you know who you are yeah and the rest of you you also know who you are now speaking of uh coming up to a one-year anniversary we're officially on page 100 of wonderful works of god can you believe it took us almost one year <laughs> if we broke that out into days that's like a page every three days. That is not impressive. It's a, yeah, snail's pace. We, we, we have done, you know, some other little things here and there. Took uh, some breaks. Interviews. Bob Inc. on. Did some of that. We'll probably do some more of that as time goes on. So, Andrew, what are we doing today? Well, we are continuing on in the wonderful works of God. We finished last time chapter 7 dealing with the Holy Scriptures, and chapter 8 is closely related to that. Sort of a transitional chapter of this book. The title of the chapter is Scripture and Confession. Scripture and Confession. So now, likely, the majority of our listeners are uh, going to be from uh, Reformed churches, but when we say confession, Andrew, are we talking about going into the little box and uh, admitting your sins to a priest. No, we're not talking about that. So what we're talking about when we talk about confession is we're talking about what does the church believe 
What does the church confess? What are the core beliefs and doctrines of the church now? If you are in a Reformed church, a confessionally Reformed church, we subscribe to sets of confessions. Our churches do, office holders in our churches do. So for us in the Reformed churches, we have the three forms of unity, the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons of Dort, along with the Ecumenical Creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. And so for our Presbyterian friends, they hold to the Westminster Standards as their confessions, so the Westminster Confession of Faith, the larger and shorter catechisms. So these confessions, they establish what is our Reformed doctrine, what are our essential beliefs? What are the things that must be believed? And in, in what consists the Christian faith? In another manner, not only then, I guess, like what consists of the Christian faith, but then how does that faith that we confess as Christians relate to the church? What is basically a relationship between dogma and the theologian with the church itself? How we connect all these things? You know, is theology just created in a vacuum? Can someone just go lock themselves up in a tower and write this stuff and then assert it as truth? Not only is it relation of this doctrine to the church, but it is relation of this doctrine to life. So if you're looking, for instance, at any of the catechisms, be it the Westminster Larger and Shorter or the Heidelberg, one of the things that they do is they have expositions on the law, on the Ten Commandments, and expositions on the Lord's Prayer. And so those are applying this doctrine not only in the church, but applying it to the life of the Christian. So it is more than just doctrine in theory, doctrine in abstract. It is doctrine made practical, doctrine applied to life. Well, let's go ahead and take a look then at how Bobbing jumps into this. We're going to come back to this topic itself on the relationship with the church and then look at this even closer. There are those who would differ with us on if we should have confessions, right? Right. So Bob we will get into that even in this chapter about how some, even early in the Reformation and more recently, have come to criticize this idea of confessions. Some say that it elevates tradition above Scripture. It adds to Scripture. There's all sorts of attacks made on the confessions and on confessional theology generally. So we'll need to take a look at those. If you're looking with us at the book Wonderful Works of God, and we're beginning on page 100, you'll notice that this chapter that Bobink is writing about confessions is actually beginning, first and foremost, with talking about Scripture again. If you listen to previous episodes on chapter 7, we've spoken about a, a good bit of what Bobink is talking about here, uh, the relationship between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the authority of both, how the... New Testament shows the fulfillment of the things promised in the Old Testament and how the Old Testament has in it the things that would become manifest in the New, to paraphrase Augustine. These two testaments were received uh, by the church. They were recognized as being authoritative. In other words, the, the church didn't grant canonical status to the church. It didn't validate it, saying, here's what we say is authoritative. But rather, the entirety of Scripture itself is in and of itself, the rule of faith and life. It is the rule and measure by which we're to understand things and how we're to live canon. Right. Recognizing these books as the word of God, not declaring them the word of God, but mm -hmm. acknowledging them for what they are. 
I was going to say, you know, Andrew, I, I really appreciate how Bavink is beginning this discussion then on these subordinate standards, these confessions and creeds by first reasserting scripture is the pillar of our faith. It's scripture that is authoritative and, you know, is, is entirely reliable. It is the norm itself that norms all else. So when we go into the confessions, I think it's just we want to keep that in the back of our minds if it's something that's uh, foreign to us or new. And it seems that Bob Inc. is anticipating the objection that he will tackle more explicitly later about the relationship of confessions to scripture and that having confessions is to add to or take away or distort scripture. And so there's a paragraph, it starts at the bottom of page 101 and carries into page 102, where Bovink basically lays this out as his foundational statement, talking about confessions. He says, In their official confessions, all churches have acknowledged the divine authority of those scriptures and have appropriated them as a reliable rule of faith and life. There's never been a difference or conflict about this point of dogma in the Christian churches. But then he goes on to make a really interesting point here. This attack on scripture of the word of God. He said that previously it's come from outside of the church. Other groups trying to attack the scriptures. But now these attacks are more increasingly coming from inside. We've talked about this a little before higher critical scholarship even within the church. We have cultural pressures placed on the church to abandon biblical teachings on certain issues that are controversial in our day. The attacks are more often coming from inside than out, it seems. And that's kind of an extension. You know, sometimes, like, especially uh, as would be true in the 19th century and the early 20th century, like you were just saying, there was this liberal strand working through things like higher criticism in which the by and large, a good bit of the American Presbyterians were trying to combat. They were, uh, you know, pushing against the German late modernism philosophies, finding their ways into the American divinity schools like Yale and Harvard and Princeton and so on. So in a large manner, American Reformed Christians of the previous century had spent a lot of efforts on, you know, doing combat to research the authority of the Bible, uh, or rather to reiterate the doctrine of inspiration and infallibility. And in the meantime, as the Reformed are going in, engaging in academic combat, you know, society is going by the wayside in pop culture. Other things started to pass us by. Maybe I'm painting things a little bit too broadly with a brush, but there was, I think, a tendency to focus on the academic and miss some of the social or social things going on and focus on evangelism. One of the issues this creates... As it relates to confessions, as much of evangelicalism, it becomes very individualistic and subjective, and it's just me and my Bible, and we're going to go out and change the world, just me and my Bible. And how I read the Bible, how I interpret the Bible, is the way that it is. What confessions do, and what confessions are for... They're not meant to be any kind of substitute for the Bible. They're not equal to the Bible. That's why Caleb used a term earlier, subordinate standards. They're held subordinate to Scripture, but we believe them to be a faithful summary of the doctrines taught in Scripture. It's how we understand Scripture as a whole and what Scripture teaches. Now, how does this impact these modern controversies? So we can look at these confessions and we can see... There is a faith once for all delivered. 
that faith has content and that faith is grounded in scripture. So when we have the various attacks rising up, whether it be the German liberalism of the 19th century or whether it be various movements of the 20th century or now, for instance, in the 21st century, we see, for instance, in the academy, Marxist historiography and interpretation really becoming predominant. Uh, this whole idea of society being analyzed strictly on the basis of power dynamics and what this means mm -hmm. for Christianity is that we are redefining sin. We are redefining our anthropology, uh, doctrine of man, who man is. We're redefining approaches to history, to God's rule over things, because anything that hints at a power structure needs to be suspect and potentially overturned. The confessions, even in a time like this, they give us something to go back. And I like to think of them as bumpers. So maybe if you were a child, if you ever went to like a birthday party at a bowling alley, I know we would do this sometimes. And for little kids, they're not very good at bowling. They're going to throw a gutter ball every time. So they would bring out these bumpers. They put them in the gutters. So if, if your ball is going to go in the gutter, instead of going in, it just bounces off. That's basically what the confessions are. They're the bumpers that keep us from going off track. They keep us from going wayward from the essential doctrines of the faith. They set the boundaries as to where we can go and where we cannot doctrinally. Right. It's a boundaries from within which we operate. You know, they're not necessarily even then boundaries that can be pushed. They're not loose and fluid. Your bumper analogy is making me think of, say, in Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, in the first one, you have Elizabeth Swan, who's trying to entreat with the, uh, the pirates. So she invokes, you know, saying, Oh, parlay, uh, I need to be able to speak with your captains. You guys are supposed to live by, by a pirate code. The captain she's trying to entreat with, Barbosa responds, Oh, they're really just more guidelines. They're there, but like, you know, we don't really have to adhere to them. That's not what these sort of bumper rails are. There is an aspect of authority in the confessions, but the authority is not in and of themselves. The authority is relative to the scriptures, if we're to perhaps use that term. Bovink writes on page 102, right after the little break there, the church is called to preserve the word of God and to explain it, to preach it, apply it, translate it, spread it abroad, recommend it, and defend it. In a word, to cause the thoughts of God laid down in Scripture to triumph everywhere and at all times over the thoughts of man. Looking at the confessions, articulating things in a confessional form help us to do this and to apply them to our present cultural situations, like Andrew was saying. In other words, the confessions are something of an echo of the speech of scriptures, you know, as the theologians would say. Uh, repetitio sacre uh, scripturae. They say what scriptures say in order to teach, to catechize. They're acquainting us with that rule of faith set down by scripture itself. Like I said before, it's a faithful summary. At the end of the day, you're not going to memorize the entire Bible, most likely. Very impressive if you can, and certainly a noble thing if you could pull it off. But at the end of the day, you don't know everything that's in the Bible. You don't know how all of those pieces fit together, especially if you don't have proper instruction, training, study, and historical backgrounds and stuff. So confessions are a summary. They are a tool for the church, not only to define its doctrine and to define its boundaries, but also as a pedagogical, as a teaching tool for its people. 
it's important to remember the context too in which the creeds and confessions are being articulated. They come out of response of controversy with heretical teachings in the church. A lot of people have a Bible. A lot of scholars have access to a Bible uh, throughout the ages. That doesn't mean they're going to make the right conclusions because while scripture is inerrant and infallible, man is not and the churches are not. So there are at times muddying of the word of God, distorting it with our own philosophies and desires and traditions. And when those heresies come forward and people start to notice, hey, that sounds a little off. That doesn't sound like what scripture is saying. Discussion breaks out and the churches start consulting with one another and they start looking at theologians from the past. They look to start articulating then what is it that scripture teaches and that the church has been saying about a particular teaching. And so the confessions are withdrawing from a deposit of the faith that we've inherited, you know, the faith that we've been handed down throughout the ages. I guess maybe think of it, scripture as like an enormous bank or the faith like an enormous bank, an inheritance laid up for us. The church uses confessions to basically articulate the deposit that we draw from. It's important that you bring that up when you're talking about these confessions as response to errors and heresies. Because when we go back to looking at this subjective approach to the Bible, we see a lot in our day where it's just me and my Bible and that's all I need. The problem is heretics always have verses. They always have certain interpretations of the Bible. They always claim to be following the Bible and they put their particular spin and interpretation on it. So one of the things that confessions do is they say this is not just the content of the Bible, but how the Bible is to be properly interpreted. So, for instance, if you look at the first chapters of the Belgic Confession or the opening chapter of the Westminster Confession, they begin with the Word of God. The Word of God is the basis from which all of the other doctrine flows. Not to beat a dead horse here, but because I like apparently using metaphors and in, in pictures right now. You're talking about the me and my Bible thing. And I think it's kind of funny where that's especially a huge default mode in America. I kind of think of uh, American evangelicals as oftentimes being like the cowboy hero in an old Western movie. John Wayne, you know, we, we have these big John Wayne, big tough guy, uh, lone gunslingers that kind of pop into town kind of mentality, you know, and if, hey, if someone wants to challenge me, you know, oh, I got my good old handy six-shooter King James here next to me. The problem with uh, being a lone gunslinger is no one's watching your back. <laughs> you know, first of all, sometimes there's going to be someone that's better equipped than you, philosophically or intellectually or whatever, or you can get ganged up upon. We need different perspectives to articulate the things that we believe. So in this way, the confessions are working in conjunction, not just with one single person or independent congregations even, but are accepted at a larger level, a federated level, basically a level in which you have covenanted churches bound together according to the doctrines of scripture. We're unified on saying, no, this is what it teaches. So you can see some of the outworkings of this lone gunslinger mentality, not just in America, but in history or this idea of objecting to the grounds of confessions and some of the places it got us. Uh, you can see on the second paragraph of page 103 an example of this, and that is that of the Remonstrance of the Netherlands. So they raise the objection, one that we often hear, that if we have a confession, it's violating the exclusive authority of Scripture. Bobbing says it violated the exclusive authority of Scripture and the freedom of conscience and that it impeded the growth in knowledge. 
Uh, but he goes on to say these objections are based on misunderstanding. The function of the confessions or creeds is not to push the scriptures into the background, but rather to maintain them and protect them against individual caprice. So the idea of confessions... It's not to replace scripture, or it's not to supersede scripture, but again, it's these bumpers. It prevents individuals from taking their wild and subjective interpretations. So looking a little bit at this historical example, the Remonstrants are probably better known as the Arminians. That was the party of Jacob Arminius and his followers in the Netherlands who more or less embraced a Pelagian soteriology, or at least a semi-Pelagian soteriology, within the Reformed churches and more or less tried to subvert the Reformed churches that way. And this was the controversy that led to actually the formulation of one of our confessional documents, the Canons of Dort, at the Synod of Dort in 1618 and 1619. I think Bobbing brings a good point in this, in how he had addresses this kind of opposition to confessions. You know, he says, so far from violating the freedom of conscience, they support it over against all sorts of heretical spirits who seek to lead weak and uninformed souls astray. Now, the Remonstrants were a group, a group, though, that was operating largely off of the scholarly work of, like you said, Jacob Arminius. Confessions, because they're working within the context of agreements with the churches, are answering typically individual proponents of error. These Remonstrants are following one particular teacher. But we're saying that we believe the things that we do in the Reformed Standards, not because like John Calvin says it or not because Augustine says it, but because the church recognizes what the Holy Spirit has testified about these things in the Word of God. You know, the, the church isn't receiving and approving these confessions nor scripture, but know the voice of the shepherd. You know, you have a pretty good liberty in the confessions. You know, uh, someone can disagree with them. Arminius had an issue with Belgic Confession Article 14. He had the liberty to disagree, but I believe there was an error actually in how he went about disagreeing. He was doing it very secretive and teaching them in his classes. And then his supporters after his death were then trying to assert these things. They were trying to combat the confessions on this. Well, the churches came together and even churches not only in the Netherlands, but from all over Europe, to go and investigate these things. The wonderful thing about confessions is that someone can appeal to a confessional article. They can actually just go up to the churches and say, hey, something feels a little odd about this. How are we to understand this point? And if there's confusion even by the church then, by a pastor or whatever, then we can go and study what scripture says about that confessional article. Someone can make an exegetical case about why a particular article in a confession may have been mistaken. In this way, we can actually test the confessions then and refine them according to what scripture itself says. In other words, the confessions are not infallible. And we have to recognize that, but we shouldn't just totally disregard them if we feel like something's a little off. We need to talk with one another about it, talk with the churches. Right. This sort of illustrates the relationship between confessions and proper church polity. If you come to find that you have a good faith disagreement with a point of doctrine on the confessions, there are right ways to handle that. There are processes to go through. The solution should not be that of Jacob Arminius, where let's say if you're a teacher, well, I'm going to teach my new view in secret 
and then hope that my students will carry on from there and take my work and prevail with it. No, the approach is we have polity, we have church order. If we believe that there is something defective in our confessions or the need to confess on additional matters, there is a process for that. There is a way to do that. The Synod of Dort was an example of that because of the Arminian conflict. Now, Arminius was teaching things that were explicitly against the existing confession. So by then, the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism were already in existence, and they were already subscribed by the ministers in the Netherlands. But additional confession was done in the Synod of Dort with the Canons of Dort to address that particular problem through a proper, valid, and in this case, even an international church process. But again, that's the right way to do it. The wrong way to do it is to just either decide privately to war against it, to live in rebellion and disagreement. The right way is to handle this as the church and to do it in a spirit of seeking the truth from Scripture. I would also add uh, seeking the truth from Scripture with an aim to promote harmony and fellowship in the churches for reconciliation. So I think there are instances in which a larger church assembly could be wrong in their handling of a dissenter. The church, even in uh, polity, can make an error, and it has made errors, improper rulings. Sometimes they might confess the right doctrine and uphold it. They might even do something with correct polity and yet lose a member by having too firm of a disciplinary hand. Right. That can happen. Well, and that's actually all the time, though, that we have for today. We really enjoy doing this. You know, it's a good opportunity Who's for us. We? Oh, me uh, and myself and I. Um, oh, okay. I. I like to refer to myself in the first person plural. Is that a royal plural? No. Is that you taking counsel in your <laughs> counsel and saying we do things? We enjoy when we talk about stuff in the Bible. I'm so happy for all of you. <laughs> No, we do enjoy doing this. Yeah, it's just a really helpful thing to be able to even just kind of as much time as it can take to prepare or in this case, not prepare, but still uh, work up the energy to go and, and jump on and talk about, you know, Bob Inc. And, and other things of Reformed Christianity. It really helps us to be able to start to kind of, like you know, process and formulate, you know, the things that we talk about in seminary, the things that we do day to day, but to try to distill it in, in really... Uh, kind of get at it in at least hopefully some kind of practical manner. So we do hope that it was helpful to you and edifying. And we hope that above all, God is glorified through this. Um, we would really appreciate your prayers in, in the endeavors with the podcast in, in work and going forward. Prayers for Andrew and I in our present vocations as seminarians and students and our desire for the ministry uh, and for our families, for our churches. So with that, we should probably, you know, be less serious in saying goodbye. Hmm. Eh. Is there a way to do that? No. Okay. All right. We should just cut it there. Tote teens. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.